Now then, inside your bulletin is the call to worship, a responsive reading from Psalm 32. It is a psalm in which the psalmist tells us that here's a man who's truly happy. Here's a man who's truly blessed. And it has nothing to do with his bank account, has nothing to do with the car he drives or the house he lives in. It is this reality that my sins are forgiven. That man is a blessed man. Will you, if you're able, please stand with me and let us call one another to worship with this responsive reading. How blessed is he whose transgressions is forgiven. How blessed is the man There's a blessed man who knows his sins are forgiven. Now take your Trinity hymn books, the Trinity hymn books, and turn to number 69. Lord, with glowing heart, I praise thee. Number 69 in your Trinity hymn book. pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for that passage in Psalm that we read. Blessed is a man whose sin is covered. And Lord Jesus, that's why we're here today to come and give you praise and worship you. The beauty that is found in you by being willing to forgive sinners such as us. We thank you for that. We pray that you would bless all that we do. Reading, singing, and hearing the word of God proclaimed to us. Uh, Gird us up for that and, and help us to go out and live for you according to those words. Come and meet with us and draw each one to you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. 
Now, again, take your Trinity hymn book, turning to 393. 393, a hymn which speaks of the free offer of the gospel. It's an invitation for sinners to come to Christ. Come, you sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Not a good description of anyone, but that's the true condition of every one of us by nature. But the invitation is to come to Christ, and he is willing to save. 393. Bible, and today we are at Matthew chapter 9. If you consider Matthew 8 and 9 together, there's a series of events of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, traveling about um, in Israel and places where he all these events kept happening to him, events involving people. He was coming in contact on the street with people. And he was healing and forgiving sins. 
and casting out uh, devils. We see the glory and beauty in Jesus Christ of desiring to save people, the lowly of the earth, and occasionally a rich man who had a child that uh, died. But we see his sovereignty in salvation and in healing um, various diseases and even his authority over the wicked one and his realm. Beautiful picture these passages paint of the glory of God revealed in the, the God the Son, the man Jesus Christ. And so as we read these um, verses, we're here to worship him and his glory is revealed to us. Um, not as someone far from us, but someone who we can reach out and touch. And come to him with a prayerful attitude today, and we pray that he will meet with us. Matthew 9. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city, and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, other Wise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. And while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. When Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players in the crowd in noisy disorder, he said, Leave 
For the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. And as they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Once again, we seek our God together in prayer. We especially want to pray for the Grace Fellowship Church in Bremen, Indiana, with Pastor John Heaney and Pastor Webb. So let us seek our God together in prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God and even the reminder this morning that you did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You have called sinners unto yourself. And Father, we know that your word tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. And it tells us that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Father, how thankful we are that you came into the world to save sinners. And that we, Father, by your grace have been brought to know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And that for many of us, we can say, even as we began this morning with the psalmist, that we are a blessed people because our sins are covered, our transgressions are forgiven, and we have a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, how we pray that that gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for many, would be effective in bringing even others unto yourself some who may sit among us and some who will hear your word in various places this morning. Father, may you open blind eyes. May you give life to dead people in bringing them unto yourself. And may this day be a day where there is much rejoicing in seeing others added to the kingdom of God. And Father, we pray, even as we were instructed to pray in your word, that you would send forth laborers, Send forth workers into the harvest. Bless, we pray, their ministry to the end that many more will come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we pray especially this morning for the Grace Fellowship Church there in Bremen. We thank you for our relationship with them over the years. And Father, we pray that you would be with Pastor Heaney and Pastor Webb as they oversee the flock of God there. May you bless, we pray, their time in the pulpit. Give them boldness and clarity as they preach your word. We thank you for the recent report of how you've been pleased to add to their number and pray that that would continue to be the case. Father, we pray that you would bless and use them there in that area for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, we would also this morning pray for those who weep we are commanded to weep with those that weep, and so we remember the Rawls 
and pray that you would be with them even in the death of Pam's mother. May you draw close to them. We thank you that they do not, they do not grieve as others who have no hope. But because of Jesus Christ, for Pam's mother to die is gain. To die is to be ushered into the presence of our Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would draw near to them. Be with them tomorrow in the funeral. We pray that, Father, it would again be an opportunity for the gospel to go forth. Now, Father, we pray that you would come by your spirit and by your word and minister to us this morning. May the word of God come with power, with clarity. And Father, may each one of us be more than just hearers of the word, but help us to be doers of that word. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now before we come to open the word of God, I would ask that you take your hymns of grace, the hymns of grace hymn book, and we will turn to hymn number 187, hymn 187. 87, a hymn that speaks about the atoning work of Jesus Christ for us. Before the Father's throne above, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love. May God help us to sing to his glory. 187 in your grace, hymns of grace. If you're able, please stand with me as we sing. This morning we continue to make our way through the book of Deuteronomy, so take your copies of God's Word and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Any of us who have been parents know that our children are prone to ask a question over and over again. And that question that they ask is, why? Why? 
Have you not heard that question in your home before? And, and sometimes the repetitiveness of that question begins to drive you a little crazy. Why, Mommy? Why do I do? Why do we? Why? 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 And so in this portion of Scripture that we come to this morning, we find the Son again asking that question. A question of why. And parents are instructed on how to answer that question. You see, on three occasions, God told parents in Israel how to answer serious questions that their children may ask. In Exodus chapter 13, with the consecration of the firstborn, we read, And it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come, saying, what is this? And then in Joshua chapter 4 and verse 6, when crossing over the Jordan and they set up a memorial of stones, we read that when your children ask later saying, what do these stones mean? And with each question, parents are directed how to answer that question. Well, here in Deuteronomy 6, Starting in verse 20, we again find a son asking a question, and parents are instructed on how to answer that question. Now, now remember, the children of Israel are about ready to enter into that promised land. And Moses assumes that as they enter into that land, and as they take residency in that land, the children are going to ask questions. And so we read verse 20, Deuteronomy 6. And when your sons ask you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you will say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt and Pharaoh and his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which He had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statues, to fear the Lord your God for our, for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are to carefully observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as He commanded us. As we come to open up these verses of Scripture, I, I want to do so under two heads. First of all, there is the assumed inquiry, and then we are secondly given the powerful reply. So Moses looks at this generation that's about ready to go into the promised land, and he assumes that by and by the children will begin to make an inquiry. And Moses assumes that, and in doing so, he addresses two things. When, the when of the inquiry, and the what of the inquiry. These two things. We, we find it there in verse 20. He says, When your sons ask you in times to come. That's the when. By and by, your children may begin making some inquiries. He, he's assuming the children have been in your home from, for some time. And they have watched how you lived. And by and by, instead of simply sweetly and nicely doing 
what they are told to do. As they get older, they may begin to ask parents certain things. That they have watched their parents live their lives. They have seen how their parents live in this society. And they've noticed that a major influence upon their lives is the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which God has passed on to them, which God has given them. And they've watched this and they've participated in this, but after some time has passed, watching these things going on in the home, Moses assumes that the children are going to begin to ask questions. He doesn't simply accept, the child that is, doesn't simply accept we live this way because, but he wants to know why we live this way. He's noticed others around him, perhaps others from other nations, they don't live like this. How come we live like this? He desires some explanation. He notices that the family stands out as a bit different. They're not like everybody else. And, and why is that? And so by and by, he begins to ask that question. As time passes, he begins to say, Mom, what, why? And so that's the when of the inquiry. But I want you to notice, secondly, the what of the inquiry. Notice what it says there in verse 20. When your sons ask you, or your son asks you in times to come, saying, what do the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? What do they mean? Now, the answer given to this question indicates that the son is looking for more than just an explanation of the commandment. That there's more to his inquiry than simply this, Mom, what does it mean, thou shalt have no other gods before me? What exactly does that mean? He, he's not inquiring about that. I believe Moses is assuming that in their homes, the commandments have been taught. You remember back in verse 7? Back in, 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 in verse 7, he says there in chapter 6 to the people of Israel, You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house. He assumes that's going on. He, he assumes that mom and dad are sitting down with the children and saying to them, here's, here's what God requires of us. We're not to take His name in vain. What, what does that mean, children? Children, that means we need to be sincere and genuine in our relationship to God. We ought not to be found as hypocrites, pretending to be something we're not. That's been going on. Children, God tells us that you're to honor your father and your mother. Moses, when the children are asking this question, it's not because they don't know the statutes or the judgments or the commands. They're, they're familiar with them. Mom and Dad, it's not... Mom and Dad, tell me about the commandments. And Mom and Dad looks at them and say, You know what? Pastor Walden, he just preached on all those commandments not too long ago. They're on Sermon Audio. So why don't you go to Sermon Audio and listen to what he had to say about what these commandments mean? No, they know the commandments and the statutes and the judgments. They also know that these things were handed down by divine revelation. 
that God had instructed them. Notice again what the text says. The testimonies, the statutes, the judgment mean which the Lord our God commanded you. They understand. They have an understanding that, that these things are something that are handed down by God. These things were just, they weren't rules that mom and dad simply made up. Or, or they weren't simply traditions handed down. We, we, we ought not to steal. That's just the way we've been living all of our lives. So we ought not to steal. The children understood that, that these things that influenced and affected how their parents lived was given to them by God Almighty. Moses assumes that the parents were involved in the teaching of their children. These very truths. So this inquiry isn't explained to us the commandments. That's not what's being said. Their inquiry is this. Why do you live by these things? What's the driving force that, that makes you behave and conduct yourself the way that you do? Dad, why is it that you treat mom a a as a treasure and I can tell that you love her? And that she is the only woman in your life. Now, I know God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But, but God, I, I, I see men all the time looking at things they ought not to look at. I, I see husbands all the time not treating their wives as they ought. I see that all the time. But I don't find that here. How come you're different? What, what's the driving force that would cause you to be obedient. In other words, the inquiry is this. Mom and Dad, why do you do what you do? So the idea is that there's, there's more to life than simply knowing these ten words handed down by God that there's something that's driving you to be obedient to these things. Why do we live the way we live? I, I, I want to know what's behind it. I mean, I, I've seen how other people react when events come into their lives that are hard. And I've seen people get upset and angry because, as they would say, this isn't fair. Why is this happening to me? But mom and dad, I've watched you live and I've seen things come into our home that have been very difficult. But there's a contentment. There's even an inward joy that you have and you're not coveting after other people's things when things don't go your way why is that? I see in your lives a devotion, a passion for Almighty God. When I go to other people's homes, I see that they have priorities that are far different of priorities in our home. I see in other people's home other things that seem to be more important to them than their relationship to God. Why is it that in this home you're determined to have no other gods before Jehovah? Why is that? Man, why is it in this home that, that one day out of seven, it's different than all the other days? I mean, I've, I've gone over to Jimmy's house, and, and they do all kinds of things uh, on this one day that they have off work. But here in our home, we're determined to delight in our God throughout that day. 
Why is that? And, and, and they're making that inquiry. Why do we live the way we live? Now, can I pause here long enough to make this application? I trust that our children feel free to ask us questions. And we don't become defensive. But they're welcomed to ask legitimate questions. And, and, and we're ready to give an answer to legitimate questions that they might ask. I, I trust our homes, there, there's an atmosphere in which respectfully, not Dad, Jimmy does this. He claims to be a Christian. How come in our home, when we claim to be a Christian, we can't do it? Jimmy's family does. I don't think that's right, Dad. Well, that's not the way to do it, children. <laughs> but I hope there, there's an environment that they feel they have the liberty to say, Dad, can, can you tell me why we do what we do? Why, why, why on Sunday morning do we get up and gather with God's people? Not everybody's doing that. And I trust we know, well, because I said so. No, here's why. And we give an answer. Well, there is the assumed inquiry. That leads us then, secondly, to notice the powerful reply. He says, Then you shall say to your son. Now immediately, notice what he doesn't say. It doesn't say, Then you shall say to your son, because God demanded this. Is that what he said? Did you notice that? He could have said that. Because these are God's commandments. But that's not what he says. Now, could he have said that? Yeah. We do this because God's commanded us to do this. You know, it's like if, if one of my sons say, Hey, Dad, why do you love Mom? I could answer, because God commands me to love Mom. Now, that's not very romantic, you know. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. Why do I love your mom? God commands me to love your mom. And how much better it is if I say I love your mom because she's a wonderful wife. She's a wonderful wife to me. That's why I love your mom. So much better. He, does, he doesn't say this. Then you shall answer, well, I'm afraid if I don't do it, one of the pastors may come for a visit, and I, I don't want to deal with the pastor. I don't want to have him in my home. That's not, not what he says. Notice where the focus of his, his reply lies. It, re, it, re, it focuses upon the redemptive act of God. It focuses upon the redemptive act of God. And, and his answer is basically this, Son, let me tell you a story. Then you shall say, Son, and then the story begins. And the basic answer is, Son, we do what we do because God has powerfully entered our lives. This compels us to do what we do. And his answer points to three things that have transpired in his life. Son, you don't want to know why we do what we do? Well, here's what God has done. First of all, he speaks about his condition. His condition. Notice what it says. Verse 21, Then you shall say to your sons, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. At one time we lived in bondage. 
We, we were slaves under the control of Pharaoh there in Egypt. And he was a terrible taskmaster. But, but there didn't seem to be any, any way to be released from him. We saw no way of escape. We were destined to be slaves and in bondage under a terrible taskmaster the rest of our lives. This was our condition. Then that leads him to say, but then there was God's provision. There was the work of God. The Lord brought us from Egypt with His mighty hand. We were delivered from this terrible condition. And God delivered us out of that. He freed us from the bondage that we once lived in. God brought about with His mighty hand a wonderful thing. And He brought judgment upon the Egyptian. The Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh and his household. This is what God has provided. We were slaves in misery and, and, and He delivered us from that. He set us free. He gave us a new life by His mighty hand. And He brought judgment upon the wicked. And so you have man's condition, God's provision. And then we have, well, before we get to the third thing, he says, here's why he did it. He, he did it for this reason. Notice again the passage. Um, he says, he brought us out from there in order to bring us in. There's been a radical change. What we once were, He brought us out of and brought us into this new land. This was God's doing. So we have man's condition, God's provision, and finally the Lord's instruction. The Lord's instruction. So the Lord commanded us to observe His statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, for our survival as it is today. It will be a righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as He commanded us. You see, He brought us out and took us in, and then He gave us instruction. He shared with us His will. He shared with us His mind in the Ten Words, in the Ten Commandments, in the Decalogue. And in light of what He has done for us, we are compelled to obey. We're compelled to fear God, to have a reverence for Him. We're compelled to do that which is pleasing in His sight. God, not only by His words, but by His action, broke into our lives. Not only did we hear His voice there on Mount Sinai as He set before us the, these ten words, but we've seen God in action. We've seen what God has done. We've seen how God has delivered us. We've seen how God has saved us. And in light of that, we're compelled with delight to follow Him, to have a reverence for Him, to live under His all-seeing eye at all times. Notice how it's phrased there, that we would observe the commandments before our Lord. We understand that we now live in His sight and we want to please Him. Why do we do what we do? Look at what God has done for us. How could we do anything else but seek to do that which is right in His sight? The righteousness spoken of here in verse 25 is a response to a relationship 
to the one true and the living God. I know Him. And knowing Him, I want to live for Him and delight in doing so. One man has said, the answer to the son's question finally focuses on the proper relationship of a man to God and the fruit of that relationship is seen in his daily life. See that? Why do you live as you live? For us, the answer is, I was a sinner. I am a sinner. And I deserve the wrath of God. Because I have broken God's law, I deserved His wrath. I deserve to spend eternity in hell separated from God. But God did a mighty work. A work I could never do in and of myself. But God sent His only Son into the world to deliver me from this terrible condition. God, by His grace, has saved my life. God, by His grace, has delivered me from my sin. God has done all this. And what is my response to that? My, my response to that is, I, I want to live for Him. That's what I want to do. To live for Him. That's why I live the way that I live. And do the things that I do. Perhaps the New Testament answer to the question that is asked here is what we read from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. The Apostle Paul says this, It's the love of God that compels me. It controls me to, to live as I ought to live. And perhaps that's how we answer. So my son, if you want to know why I live and why we live this way in our homes is because we are people who are very much in debt to a God who loved us and saved us from our sins. So you want to know why I love your mother the way I do? Because that's right in the sight of God. A God who saved me from my sins. Do you want to know why I want to live a contented life and find an inward joy even in the midst of trial and difficulty? You, you want to know what is the driving force behind that? It's God saved me from my sins. He, he delivered me from the wrath to come. And this is right and pleasing in His sight. And I want to do that for Him. Do you know why we as a family are devoted to God? It's because of what He has done for us. That's the answer. I, I'm compelled by, by the love of God. The, the Ten Commandments are not things that drag me down. They, they are not things that cause me to live a miserable life. God, having saved me, now tells me this is my will for you. Live this way. And I find it my delight in light of what He has done for me. I'm, I'm compelled to live this way. That's your answer. So if your son inquires, why do you live this way? It's not, well, because God commanded me to. It's because the love of God compels me to. Do you know something about that? That the love of God compels you? It's interesting to note that following the Ten Commandments 
does not produce life. Following the Ten Commandments is how we ought to live life. Moses recognized that. It is because of this work of redemption, because God has delivered us, because God has forgiven us of our sins through His Son, Jesus Christ, that these commandments now tell me how I ought to live. The Ten Commandments left by themselves only leads to death. You understand that? The Ten Commandments show you how sinful you are. And the wages of sin is death. And so for someone to simply say, I'm going to to go to heaven and I'm going to be right with God because I obey His commandments, it doesn't work. The commandments, the law shows us our sin. And it shows us our need of a Savior. It doesn't produce life. Life is produced in knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And knowing God through His Son, through Jesus Christ. The Ten Commandments tells us, this is how you now live life. This is how you live life. And so let me me bring all this to a close by just asking you some simple questions. You who profess to be believers... Does your life stand out as different from the world? Do people who watch how you live notice there's, there's just something different about how you live? The, the way I love my wife is different than how most would love their wives? Because I'm compelled by the love of God. My contentment in this world, though I may not get everything I always want, and at times life seems difficult and, and, and trials come my way, I live this way because not because the commandments tell me to do so. I live this way because the love of God compels me to do so. Because this is what He's done for me. Does my life stand out as different from the world? Do the world see that? Do my children see that? Do my children see me live a life that's different than most? And then I have this question. For you who are believers, does the work of God in bringing me out of the kingdom of darkness and placing me into the kingdom of God, does that still thrill you? When was the last time there was just an overwhelming delight in what God has done for you? When when was the last time that that you recognized what a sorry condition you were in and how you've been delivered from that condition? And and it even brought a tear to your eye as you've thought about this great work that God has done in your life. When was the last time you you just knew the thrill of, of knowing that my sins are forgiven? Really, when? Well, that pastor... That sounds like emotionalism. Well, maybe it's good to get a little emotional. You know, look what God has done. I mean, when my grandchildren come up and put their arms around me and say, Oh, Grandpa, I love you. I mean, I'm not a stoic. I don't say, Okay. I know, I'm lovable. All right, go. No, oh, I love you too. There's an emotion. I've got these little ones who love me. Well, look at the great love that God has demonstrated toward us. Wow, we ought to love Him. Love Him. And that's demonstrated in how, in how we live. Can you say the love of... When was the last time the love of God compelled you to do anything? Do you know that? Spurgeon 
wrote on the love of Christ, not as that which ought, but as that which must compel us. And he wrote or he preached, the gospel to the Christian is a thing of power. What is it that makes the young man devote himself as a missionary to the cause of God? To leave father and mother and go into a distant lands. It is a thing of power that does it. It's the gospel. What is it that constrains the minister in the midst of cholera to climb up the creaking staircase and stand by the bed of some dying creature who has a dire disease? It must be a thing of power which leads him to virtue his life. It is love of the cross of Christ which bids him to do it. With some people, when they give Christ anything or do anything for him, it is a dreadfully forced work. Okay, I'll love her. Okay, I'll... No, no. They say... The love of Christ ought to constrain us. I do not know that there is such a text in the Bible. I do remember the one that runs thus. The love of Christ constrains us. If it does not constrain us, it is because it is not in us. It is not merely a thing which ought to be. It must be. Which is it? When, when you seek to live for Christ, is it a forced act? Okay, I'll do it. I don't want it. Or is it, I can't help but do it. Because I love Him. Why do you live the way you live? Because I want a good reputation with others? Because I want others to think highly of me? Because God says to do it? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a reason to do it, but how about because of God's great love for me? That compels me to do it. And, and that's, what, that's what Moses says when your sons ask, why do you live this way? You say to them, here's the story. I was lost. I was in bondage. And God, by His mighty act, delivered me so that I might live for Him. That's why we live this way. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would take Your Word and use it for our good. Perhaps there are some among us who would say, I don't know this God. I know nothing about being moved by the love of God. I, I know nothing about my sins forgiven and, and I have a relationship with God. Oh, Father, may they see that You stand ready to save all who call upon You. And may this day they turn from their sins and in faith and repentance embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for many of us who profess to be Christians, how we pray that that Your love for us in delivering us from our sins would compel us to so live for You. Father, may we by our behavior and life demonstrate to others that God loves us and we love Him. Help us, we pray, as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In closing, take your hymns of grace, your hymns of grace, and turn to 389. 389, it is a, the testimony of the believer. All I have is Christ. That's it. That's what I need. That's what I have. And therefore, I want to live for Him. 389, all I have is Christ. <clears throat> If you're able, please stand with me as we sing.
glad to have you. If you're visiting with us, if you haven't signed a guest book, we'd like to have a record of your visit. Lunch will be served a little later on, and then we'll have an afternoon service about 1.45. You are dismissed. Thank you.